I, I would love to just one day say, when somebody says, are you a feminist? I would just love to turn her to them and say, like, I'm in Anishinaabe clay. And then people just understanding that, like, yes, I am a feminist, but I'm not a feminist in your colonial terms. I have, a, I have a, this very good friend, and when I described myself as a feminist, she said, why would you do that? I'm an angwe angwe woman. That just means that I'm a feminist. Um, and so when she said that, it just made so much sense to me. And I was like, you're right. I'm just the Mishnabe clay. Like, you know, the, like feminism in that sort of colonial term, that, 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 that runs through our veins. That's a part of our DNA. That's a part of how we got to be here, you know, because of my ancestors, because of the, the strong Ogichita Anishinaabe clays. Like I'm here because they were all feminists before feminism became a thing. They, they survived. Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? My name is Krista. I'm Trivaquan from Moravian Times First Nation, and I'm the Advocacy and Outreach Coordinator at the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. Uh, my name is Denise Booth-McLeod. Um, I'm Anishinaabe from my, my family's territory as Sagamuk Anishinaabek First Nation, which is on the north shore of Lake Huron. And uh, I have, I am um, sort of a uh, survivor, if you will, of sort of that last generation of the 60s scoop. Uh, I grew up in the city. Um, I'm a mom of two teenagers, which is uh, pretty weird to say most of the time. Um, and uh, I so my full-time job, I work at a place called the Toronto Birth Center uh, as the Indigenous and Community Engagement Coordinator, which is a lot of uh, education and outreach, uh, sort of talking about midwifery and who has access to midwifery and how can you have access to midwifery and talking about the birth center. Um, I also uh, do this doula thing with Krista, which is, which is super fun. And, you know, we started our own collective called O Jamie Jesus. <laughs> uh yeah, that's uh that's that's me. That's that's finished. In Canada, indigenous people have faced over five hundred years of colonization. Some of these barbaric practices to wipe out indigenous communities have included but are not limited to measle-filled blankets given to First Nation communities as gifts residential schools that started in the 1800s to take the Indian out of the child, and the 60s scoop, a trend among child welfare agencies to take Indigenous children away from their families, communities, and cultures. The stripping of birth rights away from Indigenous women in rural and remote communities is less known. Until the 1970s, Indigenous women in rural and remote areas gave birth in their communities, usually supported by family members, traditional midwives, or both. The government imposed hospital deliveries for all women, 
This in turn led to the transfer of pregnant women out of their communities, away from their families and traditions, sometimes for several weeks at a time, before and after birth. Today, Indigenous communities are reclaiming and restoring their reproductive health rights, which includes birth practices and birthplace. I'm your host, Maingo, and in this episode, I speak with Krista and Denise, two Indigenous full-spectrum doulas who share with me what it means for them to be feministing birth in the 21st century. Can you share with me a bit about why it's important to have specific care for Indigenous people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the short um, answer is colonialism. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Done. I get I think, it. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's, yeah. I, and, you know, it's, it's about being able to ensure that our community is able to have, like, choice, just like every other, com- well, not every other community, but, you know, uh, for so long in, uh, in these territories and, you know, in, even in, especially in the North, you know, uh, people who give birth are not able more often than not to have choice of where they want to give birth, who they're going to give birth with, uh, even ceremony and, and culture and language, like all of that is now taken away, which, uh, you know, colonialism, but, um, it's about, uh, for me, at least, um, I was pretty young when I had my, my two children and I didn't even know that, I, like that I had a choice. You know, I, I didn't know that I was able, to, I, I could have been able to, you know, wash, you know, bathe my babies in cedar or sing them songs or speak the language to them or not have the, you know, medical intervention that, that, um, that was used uh, on, on both of them. So if I can, if I personally can support or, to like train other people to support um, the reclamation of language and culture and community in our, within indigenous communities. Like that's, that's me. That's, that's amazing. It's like a big F you to like the colonial system. Like well, mm-hmm. our language is still happening. Our culture and our ceremony are still happening. Even though you spent, you know, 524 years trying to get rid of it. Like we're still doing it. I love that. It, are you are you willing to share a bit about your experience when you did have your babies? I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't sort of in touch with my own body. Like I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know anything. I was twenty. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> you know. I. Um, but yeah, like I. I just didn't feel empowered or in touch, and I didn't like the care that I got was like I went to the doctor they weighed me they took my blood pressure asked me if I had any questions but weren't really listening and then sent me on my way you know like I didn't there there was no there was no like teen talk that like I when I see the care that people get with midwives now I'm like what what is this magicalness I have so many questions and nobody asked me anything like I didn't even know what a mucus plug is what does it what does it mean to be a doula with an indigenous perspective for me, like being an Indigenous doula is is so much more than uh, sort of that mainstream practice of of doulaing. Like, um, 
you know, it's, it's just like midwives, just like traditional midwives. Like I, we use sort of that, the word doula because it's sort of the, the common word that, that is used to describe what, you know, the, like people in sort of that field do, um, which the word itself is pretty problematic. Like it comes from Greek. Cause that means like slave. So uh, for me, like, I don't really see myself as a doula as, uh, per se. I see myself as like, you know, sort of what we would call like an auntie in training, like that person mm-hmm. who is a community member who like takes care of and, you know, however that looks, you know, like, full spectrum doula and indigenous full spectrum doula thing is, you know, supporting people, uh, supporting whoever can get pregnant regardless of the outcome of pregnancy, which again, that mainstream model doesn't really follow. Like, you know, it's usually, you know, a heteronormative wanted pregnancy and everybody's really excited about having that, you know, having that pregnancy or continuing on with the pregnancy, whereas, you know, full spectrum doula is, is about all of, all of the gamuts in between being happy to be pregnant and not being happy to be pregnant or uh, avoiding pregnancy or, or, you know, starting on the journey of like, you know, well gynae care, you know, starting your first menses, all of those things. And again, it's about like, for me, as someone who has was like displaced from my culture and my language and my ceremony for a large portion of my life, being able to support families to reclaim that is really important. It's really important to me. And it's really important to me to model that to my children that maybe they're, maybe they're not paying attention now, or maybe they are, but knowing that like, this is, this is, this is who we are not just as like people with uteruses, but as like indigenous people with uteruses. Like this is, these are our roles and responsibilities in community. And, uh, and it kind of like our full spectrum doula stuff kind of looks a little bit more mainstream, but we're really trying to, to walk those two worlds, like to walk that, um, to walk like the traditional and the contemporary. I think it's a response to the extreme amount of violence that we face and a very tangible um, response to the realities of not just obstetric violence that people face, but like the everyday violence of like existing as Indigenous nations under a colonial state. Mm -hmm. Um, And so supporting each other through hard shit (laughs) is a pretty, is actually a really amazing um, I think a way to respond to that in addition to actually, you know, organizing to change that, of course, but um, to just do that, that one-on-one support. When you, when you just said that right now being a full spectrum doula could also mean offering support during um, the puberty stage, for example. And then you also mentioned that midwives used to hold the knowledge of taking people through um, the death passage as well as um, the birthright passage. And, and that, that to me is really interesting because you hear midwives all the time say there's so many similarities between birth and death. And yet, and yet it's so compartmentalized in terms of how we approach um, these two very big rites of passage in our lives. Um, And 
yeah, that's that's a very interesting that midwives used to hold that knowledge. Yeah, I I think that there is this reclamation of of indigenous midwives, uh, like reclaiming that knowledge and holding that knowledge. But I, you know, like there's it's a very purposeful thing that you know birth and death are now very compartmentalized. The 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 people that used to hold this knowledge and the people that used to like help with the birthing journey and the end of life journey, you know, more often than not, they were women. And, and like across the board, not just in, in indigenous communities, but in all communities. And so, there, you know, we, like, there is a reason why the, these two things are now separated and, and, um, you know, men are now in this, in this position. Like, you know, if we, we can talk for hours about, you know, patriarchy and colonialism and colonization and misogyny and racism and sexism and all of those things very much come into play with birth and death. You know, being able to, to you know, in, in many indigenous communities, being able to, to bathe our babies in, cedar, in a cedar bath is like, that's the first thing that we're supposed to do. And then when, when we die, one of the first things we're supposed to do is bathe our, our loved ones in a cedar bath when they've passed on. Like those, those things, um, we're now being able to reclaim them and, and sort of having spaces and, and advocates to be like, no, 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 indigenous people, they're going to, they're going to hold space for that. Like there, you know, there are amazing hospitals in Toronto that are allowing this to happen and funeral homes that are allowing this to happen. But, for a really long time, this didn't happen. And so indigenous communities weren't allowed to celebrate or mourn the way we wanted to. Like just the use of cedar was censored. Like you weren't allowed to practice that in, like what was so threatening about doing that? Colonization. It was about the, the, the mass and the mass genocide of a culture, language and people. And so when our culture and language and ceremonies uh, were illegal up until 1978, so, you know, just before most of our lives, like, you know, I'm only a few years off of that. Um, the, like, you know, that, that, was, that was the destruction. And this just didn't even happen within North America. Like, this happened in so many communities that, that you know, They've, we've lost all of all of the ways that our people have mourned or celebrated for millennia. And the one thing, the one thing we will like confidently rail against is how the privatization and the capitalization of both birth and death death doulas, um, I think, have really overshadowed cultural mm-hmm. traditions mm-hmm. that are resurging mm-hmm. and are making their way back, despite you know, eon, like despite a really long time of colonial interference. And so when you see, you know, people's like nice professional white for-profit um, doula services, both for birth and death, uh, you know, I think there's a reason that's happening. And there's a reason that we're trying to play catch up and we're trying to um, scrape together what we can to, um, to do the same thing. Right. Because it, because it's not actually the same, right. It, it's called, we use similar language, but it's like totally different to things that, that we're trying to do. Um, and not to say that people can't get great care um, from folks who use that model, but 
um, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting observation when you're trying to do this, this work and then see that out there. And I think it's all about choice. Like if you, sorry, it's about choice. Like if you, if mainstream folks want to pay thousands of dollars for, for, you know, the homogenized whitewashed versions of, of ceremony and culture, like fantastic. But let us like, let us keep like, no, you don't have access to, no, you don't have access to like our language, culture and tradition and ceremony. And no, you don't have a right to access our language, culture and tradition. It's been capitalized to the point where who is accessing these services, who's able to pay for them, who's able to get the support, who is becoming a doula. Um, and so I find that really interesting that you're observing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, like it is like this mass consumption, like, the one thing I've noticed the most about sort of working in a, in a place where babies are born and sort of being a part of that, that sort of very specific birth work is sort of the commercialization of parenting and that you're, you're, you need to have all of these things to be a good parent when, and I just, I find it hilarious because you know, I, I was 20 when I had my kid, my first kid, and we didn't have any of that. And she's like almost 16 and she's, she's amazing. And I'm like, what are, like, why, you know, like people feeling like they've, you know, they've created this like new, uh, we're going to make our own baby wipes. And I'm just like, isn't that just like a washcloth with some water on it or, you know, like we're gonna baby wear, and I'm like, ba- baby wearing? Like that's a thing that has happened in most indigenous community, all indigenous communities across the world, for time immemorial, and now it's repackaged, and you have to pay hundreds of dollars to learn how to wear your baby. Ah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the same like the same people who. I I feel like also like if we were to do the same things around the things or like not by those things, you know, we get, our communities get punished by that. Like we're the ones who actually face like the surveil, the increased surveillance and the increased Mm -hmm. apprehension rates around not being fit parents or whatever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because of poverty imposed by the state. Actually, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a reason people can't afford to feed their children has nothing to do with their quality as a parent. Um, And so I think that, that, that connection to like all these all the products and things that you're supposed to have and whatever those aren't marketed you know to folks that uh, could potentially actually use you know a little bit more ease or a little bit more support or whatever because they're going at it by themselves or don't have as much access so yeah it gets us really angry <laughs> yeah and it's really frustrating to see um, yeah and you know as as someone who, you know, was, was taken away from my parents and not because they were bad people, but because they didn't have the skills because they went through trauma, just like my grandparents went through trauma. And so being displaced for multi-generations because, because of state violence, because of this, you know, this sort of, there's, there's only one way you can parent. 
and there's only one way that is, you know, parenting is, is acceptable. And uh, that, that in itself is, is so frustrating to me because we're, we're putting all of these, you know, sort of expectations on, on new parents who, you know, who are living with trauma, who are, you know, who are, and I I say this all the time, but, you know, I, like, when I talk to other Indigenous folks and community who are, who are parents, you know, there's always that joke, like, oh, we have to behave ourselves because Native Child is watching. They're going to come and take away our babies. And while we might be joking about it because we have a little bit more privilege to, to, you know, have access or being able to, to do those things. This is a, like, this is a reality though. Like I can honestly say that I was terrified that they were going to take away my children for such a long time. It's, it's just being indigenous and knowing that the state watches us, the state watches how we parent and it actually wouldn't matter what your social location is within indigenous communities. You know, if, if they think you're, if the, you know, the big scary, you know, child protection services thinks that you're a bad parent, then you're going to, you know, they're going to come knocking on your door. Is there a reason that reproductive justice uh, was a framework that, um, that you were attracted to? Hmm, That's a good question. I mean, I think that probably the same reason a lot of people um, who don't kind of fit into the like feminist white pro-choice thing, it's just they're too, they're, it just didn't go far enough or it got frustrating, the limitations of it, or um, get, getting really frustrated with being told that like social justice issues are secondary, right? Or gender justice issues are secondary and that, you know, let's, let's get this, these rights and these health you know, things figured out first, and then we can deal with all that race stuff. Um, and and I think that's that's still that's still very much a frustration. Um, and so having a framework that can hold all of that complexity and all that nuance um, is a bit of a relief, actually. It's really nice, um, and I, and I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in that. What is white feminism to you? Oh. <sighs> Evil incarnate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, Violence. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, <laughs> I mean, so, like, first wave, second wave feminism had a place. Like, had a, even, even like, third wave feminism has a place. And I'm not discounting the, the importance of those movements. For me, though, the fact that, you know, people aren't talking about intersectionality, but want um, equality, which also, can we stop with the equality? Like we want equity. Can we talk about intersectionality? Can we talk about equity? Like these are the things that we shouldn't be talking about. And so when, when like sort of like that white feminism happens and people are talking about, you know, equality and, you know, equality for the sexes. And I'm just like, this is, is this 1972? Like, haven't we, like, we're done with this. Like, let's move on to the next thing. And it's, it's often, we're not, like, because of white feminism, you know, people of color, BIPOC people, queer folk, trans folk, like, none of us have a voice. 
so white feminism needs to stop. Like, it, can it can it just stop? Like, is that now? A lot of the uh, conversations I've heard among uh, white women is that if we bring in uh, other lenses, then women will be, you know, forgotten, will be left behind. Oh, what a I'm sorry, please. What a bullshit fucking excuse. Fuck that. Agreed. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. I get, so, I get all, like, I get all. No, I, th- I mean, I think my, my sister Erin and I, uh, with the Navy Social Health Network, been, you know, asked this question a lot. And uh, what feels like a million years ago, we were in this little itty bitty book called Feminism for Real. And our response to that was like, fuck the waves of feminism. We are mm-hmm. the ocean. It is an mm-hmm. ocean of indigenous knowledge mm-hmm. that has allowed for any of this. Right. So the, the, the you know, people say, Oh, you need to you need to thank, you know, people who fought for your rights and blah blah blah. I'm like, we wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for them. <laughs> we would not be here in the first place. So no, I'm not gonna be grateful. I'm not going to be thankful. I mean, I'm going to be thankful for my ancestors who got me here. I'm going to be thankful for my mother who raised me. You know, all of those things. And, like, that includes some white folks. But, like, mm-hmm. um, I'm, but I'm not going to credit them with, with the mess of, like, yeah. It just, yeah. It's just <laughs> very yeah. exasperating. Yeah. Yeah, clean. What What does being a feminist mean to you, then? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Not it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think I think feminism. Mm. Uh, I go back and forth. Like it just changes yeah. depending on the yeah. time of day and the weather. Yeah. On whether yeah. even I'm gonna self identify yeah. that way. Yeah. Like I have a whole piece of wrote whole almost a secret spoken word artist and like with a collective called Seeds and Stardust and like. Sometimes I can't even, sometimes it doesn't fit. Honestly, sometimes it doesn't fit. Sometimes I'm just Indigenous and that's mm-hmm. enough. And that should be enough. And mm-hmm. people should understand that that includes values around gender equality because we fucking invented that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, <laughs> the fact that I have to, it feels redundant sometimes to say, oh, Indigenous feminism. Like, it feels really redundant um, often, but English sucks. And so we, like, mm-hmm. do the best we can with what we have, um, as with everything. And so, uh, yeah, I just like doing a lot of thinking about that, and it really depends um, on the space that I'm in about whether I'm going to identify that way um, and whether it makes sense for me to do that, and who I'm aligning with myself with in those moments, mm-hmm. um, and whether that's strategic or not. And it, it ver- has very little to do with my actual values because I have other words and other ways, mm-hmm. kind of actual lived values that are you know kind of based in um, in cultural knowledge and based in other things. Thanks, Kristen and Denise, for your fierceness, wisdom, and honesty. A bow down to Spirit Women's Hand Drum Group for their tunes sung on Turtle Island. All episodes have been recorded on unceded Algonquin territory. If you love this episode, please leave the podcast a review or subscribe on iTunes to keep it going. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We're always looking for stories, so contact me at www.thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments about today's episode, find me on Twitter or Facebook 
at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag The Birth Talks. I'm your host, Mingo, and until next time, live life, love true, and keep it real.